Welcome to the Ramayan Podcast, a weekly podcast featuring an episodic reading in English of St. Tulsidas' version of the epic Ramayan. Each of these podcasts will be about 30 minutes long, and over time we'll complete the entire epic. The archive of episodes can be found at www.ifiw.org slash Rama, R-A-M-A. We begin this episode in the Ayodhya Khand at verse 23. In their ecstasy of joy, all the citizens, both men and women, busied themselves with festive preparations, and the entrance to the royal palace was flooded with a continuous stream of people going in and coming out. Delighted at the news, a few of Sri Ram's boy companions called on him in a body, and sensible of their affection, the Lord received them kindly and politely inquired after their health and welfare. After receiving the permission of their beloved friend, they returned home, speaking highly of him to one another. Is there anyone in this world so amiable and constant in his affection as Rama? In whichever species we may be born from time to time as a result of our actions, may God grant us that Sita's spouse may be our Lord and we his servants, and that this relation between us may continue till the end. Everyone in the city cherished the same desire, but there was intense agony in Kaikei's heart. Who is not ruined by evil company? Man loses his wit by following the counsel of vile men. At eventide, the king joyously visited Kaikei's palace. It looked as if love incarnate had called upon harshness personified. The king was taken aback when he heard of the sulking room. His feet refused to advance on account of fear. He, under whose powerful arm the Lord of Celestials dwelt secure, and whose good will was even sought by all rulers of men, was stunned at the news of his wife's anger. Look at the mighty power of Eros. Even those who have endured the blows of a spear, thunderbolt, or sword have been overcome with the flowery shafts of Rati's lord, the god of love. The king timidly approached his beloved queen and was terribly distressed to perceive her condition. She was lying on the floor in old and coarse attire, having cast away all the ornaments of her person. Her wretched garb so eminently befitted her, prognosticating, as it were, her impending widowhood. Drawing close to her, the king asked in soft accents, Why are you angry, my soul's delight? As the king touched her with his hand, saying, Why are you angry, my queen? Kaikei threw it aside and flashed upon him a furious glance like an enraged serpent with the two cravings of her heart for its bifurcated tongue and the boons that had been promised to her by the king for its fangs spying out a vital part. As fate would have it, says Tulsidas, the king took it all as an amorous sport. Said the king again and again, Tell me the cause of your anger, O fair-faced, bright-eyed dame, with a voice melodious as the notes of a cuckoo, and a gait resembling that of an elephant. Who is it, my dear, that has harmed you? Who is there with a head to spare, and who is it that has courted by death? Tell me what pauper I should exalt to the position of king, and what monarch I should banish from his kingdom. I could slay even an immortal, were he your enemy. Of what account, then, are men and women? who are mere worms, as it were. You know my disposition, O beautiful lady. My mind is enamored of your face as the Chikora bird is of the moon. O my beloved, my people and my family and all that I possess, my sons, nay, my life itself, are all at your disposal. 
If I tell you anything insincerely, O good lady, I should be guilty of falsely swearing by Ram a hundred times. Ask with a cheerful countenance whatever pleases your mind, and adorn your charming limbs with jewels. Distinguish within yourself between an opportune and inopportune hour, and give up, my darling, this unbecoming attire at once. On hearing this, and considering the great oath, the dull-witted Kaikei smilingly arose and began to put on her ornaments. It seemed as if a huntress was laying the trap at the sight of a deer. Thinking her reconciled, the king spoke again in soft and winning accents, his whole frame thrilling over with emotion. "'Your heart's desire, O good lady, is accomplished. Every house in the city is a picture of joy and felicity. Tomorrow I am installing Rama as the prince regent. Therefore, O bright-eyed dame, put on a festive garb.' The queen's heart, hard though it was, cracked at these words. It seemed as if a festering sore had been unwarily touched. Even such heart-rending agony was disguised by her under the cloak of a smile. Just as a thief's wife does not openly weep on seeing her husband suffer punishment, lest she should be made to share his lot. The king was unable to detect her wily designs, tutored as she was by a teacher, Mantra, who ranked foremost among millions of villains. Although the king was skilled in statesmanship, the ways of a woman are like an unfathomable ocean. Again, with a greater show of false affection, she smilingly said, with a graceful movement of her face and eyes, You do repeat the word, ask, ask, but never actually give anything. You promised me two boons, but I am yet doubtful about my ever getting them. I have now understood the whole mystery, said the king with a smile. You are extremely fond of being angry. You kept the boons in reserve and never asked for them. As for myself, I forgot all about them, being oblivious by nature. Pray do not level a false charge against me. You may as well ask for four boons instead of two. It has always been the rule with the race of Ragu that one's plighted word must be redeemed even at the cost of one's life. Even a multitude of sins cannot be matched with a lie. Can millions of tiny Gunja seeds ever stand comparison with a mountain? Veracity is the root of all noble virtues, as is well known in the Vedas and Puranas, and as has been declared by Manu, the first lawgiver. Over and above this, I have unwittingly sworn by Rama, the lord of Raghus, who is the very perfection of virtue and the highest embodiment of affection. Having thus bound him to his word, the evil-minded queen smilingly said, removing as it were the cap from the eyes, of her hawk-like plot. The king's desire to see Ram installed as the prince regent of Ayodhya represented a lovely grove, and the joy that prevailed everywhere stood for a host of charming birds. Queen Kaikei, who resembled a Bila woman, sought to release a fierce falcon in the form of her piercing words. Hear, my beloved lord, that which pleases my heart. Vouchsafe to me for one boon, the installation of Bharat as the prince regent of Ayodhya, and for the second boon I ask with joined palms, pray accomplish my desire, my lord. Let Rama dwell in the woods for fourteen years in the garb of a hermit and wholly detached from the world. The king was grieved at heart to hear these gentle words, even as a Chakravaka bird is filled with agony at the mere touch of a moonbeam. 
He felt dismayed and could not utter a word, like a partridge in the woods at the swoop of a falcon. The king turned altogether pale as a palm tree struck by lightning. With his hands to his forehead and closing both his eyes, he began to mourn like grief personified. The celestial tree of my desire that had already blossomed has been torn up with its roots by the elephant-like Kaikei just when it was about to bear fruit. She has desolated Ayodhya and laid the foundation of everlasting misfortune. An inauspicious thing has happened at an auspicious moment, and I am doomed by putting my trust in a woman like a striving yogi who has been undone by nescience at a time when his practice of yoga was just going to bear fruit in the form of realization. In this way the king moaned within himself. Seeing his bad plight, the wicked queen sulked within her heart and said, is Bharat not your son, and have you bought me in consideration of money? If my words pierced you like arrows the moment they entered your ears, why should you not make promises after careful thought? Either say yes to my proposal or decline. You are true to your promise more than anyone else in the race of Ragu. Refuse the boons you promised me, abandon truth, and court infamy in the world. Loud in your praise of truth, you promised me two boons, imagining, of course, that I would ask for a handful of parched grain. Sibi, Dadichi, and Bali redeemed their plighted word, maintaining whatever they said, even at the cost of their lives and possessions. In this way, Kaikei uttered most pungent words, as though applying salt to a burn. A champion of righteousness, the king took courage and opened his eyes, and beating his head, sighed out, she has smitten me in the most vital part. He saw her standing before him, burning with rage, as it were, fury's very own sword drawn from the sheath, with a malicious mind for its hilt and remorselessness for its edge, whetted on the grindstone in the shape of a humpback mantra. The king saw that the sword was dreadful and inflexible, and said to himself, Is it really going to take my life? Then, stealing his heart, he politely spoke to her in endearing terms. My darling, why should you utter such unbecoming words, casting all confidence and affection to the winds, O timid lady? Bharat and Rama are my two eyes. I vouch for it, calling Shankara as my witness. I will positively dispatch a messenger at daybreak, and the two brothers, Bharat and Shatrugan, will speedily come on hearing the message. Then, after fixing an auspicious date and making all preparations, I will solemnly bestow the kingdom on Bharat. Rama has no greed of sovereignty and is deeply attached to Bharat. I was only going to follow the usage obtained among the princes, considering the seniority and juniority of the two princes. I sincerely tell you, swearing by Rama a hundred times, that his mother, Kosalya, never said a word to me in this connection. No doubt I arranged everything without consulting you, and that is why my cherished desire has not been realized. Now give up your anger. Put on a festal garb. A few days hence Bharat will be the prince regent. Only one thing has caused me pain. The second boon that you have asked for is something incongruous. My heart is still burning with the agony caused by it. Is it anger or jest, or is it all really true? Tell me with a cool mind Sri Ram's guilt. Everybody says Ram is extremely well behaved. You too spoke well of him and loved him. Hearing now what you have asked, 
I have begun to suspect whether your profession of love was genuine. How could he whose temperament was congenial even to an enemy act contrary to the will of his own mother? No more of jesting or anger, my darling. Make a reasonable and thoughtful request, so that I may now regale my eyes on the sight of Bharat's installation on the throne. A fish may rather survive even without water, and a serpent may drag on a miserable and wretched existence without the gem in its head. But I tell you sincerely and with a guileless heart that I cannot live without Ram. Be assured in your mind, my wise darling, that my very existence depends on the sight of Sri Ram. Hearing these soft words, the evil-minded queen blazed up like the fire on which had fallen an oblation of clarified butter. She said, You might as well try millions of devices, but your stratagem shall not avail with me. Either grant my request or earn a bad reputation by refusing it. I am not fond of much wiles. Ram is virtuous. You, too, are virtuous and wise, and no less virtuous is Ram's mother, Kosalya. I have known all of you, and I will repay with a vengeance the benefit she has sought to confer upon me. If Ram does not retire to the woods, assuming the garb of a hermit as soon as the day breaks, death for me and ill repute for you will be the result. Bear this in mind, O king." So saying, the wicked woman rose and stood up as though it were a swollen stream of passion that had issued from the mountain of sin, and overflowing with the water of anger was too terrible to look at. The two boons she had asked for represented its banks, her inexorable obstinacy corresponded to its swift current, and the impelling force of Mantra's words stood for its eddies, uprooting the king like a tree, the river headed toward the ocean of adversity. The king now perceived that the demand of the queen was really true, and that it was death itself which was dancing over his head in the disguise of his own consort. Clasping her feet, he persuaded her to sit down and implored her, Pray, do not play the axe with respect to the solar race. Ask of me my own head, and I will forthwith give it to you, but kill me not by tearing Ram away from me. Retain Ram by any means whatsoever, or your bosom will burn with anguish all your life. When the king saw the malady uncontrollable, he dropped on the ground, beating his head and sobbing out in most piteous tones, Ram, O oh Ram, O oh Lord of Raguz! The king was stricken with grief and his limbs began to droop. It looked as if a wish-yielding tree had been knocked down by a female elephant. His throat was dry, and speech failed his lips. He felt miserable like a fish out of water. Kaikei plied him once more with pungent and harsh words, injecting poison, as it were, into his wound. If this was what you intended doing in the long run, what emboldened you to say, Ask, ask? Can both these things happen at the same time, O sovereign of the earth? To laugh a boisterous laugh and to look grave? to enjoy the reputation of being generous and yet be stingy? Is it possible to remain unscathed while playing the hero? Either go back upon your word or forbear. Pray do not wail like a woman. Life and wife, sons, home, wealth, and land have been spoken of as no better than a straw in the eyes of a man who is true to his word. On hearing these poignant words, the king exclaimed, Say what you will. You are not to blame for it. 
It is my doom which has possessed you like a devil and is using you as its mouthpiece. Bharat would never covet sovereignty, even unwittingly. By the decree of fate, however, evil counsel has taken possession of your mind. All that is the outcome of my sins, due to which the tide has turned against me at an inopportune moment. Beautiful Ayodhya shall flourish again under the sovereignty of Ram, the abode of all virtues. All his brothers shall serve him, and his fame shall spread throughout the three spheres of creation. The stain on your reputation and my remorse shall not disappear even after our death, and shall never go until eternity. Now do whatever pleases you, only keep out of my sight, hiding your face. So long as I live, I beseech you with joined palms, pray, speak not a word to me again. You will repent in the end, O hapless woman, that you killed a cow for the sake of a gut. Thus arguing with her in numberless ways, the king dropped on the ground, crying, Why do you bring ruin to all? But a past master in wiles, the queen did not utter a word, as though busy performing magical rites in a crematorium. Stricken with grief, the king repeated the word Ram again and again, and felt miserable like a bird that has been shorn of its wings. He prayed in his heart, May the day never dawn, nor may anyone go and tell Ram. Rise not, O sun god, the progenitor of Ragu's race, for you will be pained at heart to see the plight of Ayodhya. The king's affection and the relentlessness of Kaikeyi both were the highest of their kind in God's creation. While the king was yet wailing, the day broke, and the music of lute, flute, and conch was heard at his door. Bards extolled him, and minstrels sang his praises. They, however, pierced the king like shafts as he heard them. These and other tokens of rejoicing pleased him not, even as ornaments repel a widow who has decided to accompany her deceased husband to the other world. None could have a wink of sleep that night, since everyone was eagerly longing for the sight of Sri Ram. At the door waited a crowd of servants and ministers, who said to one another at the sight of the risen sun, The Lord of Ayodhya has not yet woken up. What special reason can there be? The king used to wake up during the last watch of the night every day. His behavior today appears most strange to us. Getting into the palace, O Sumant, you go and rouse him. On receiving his orders we may proceed with our work. Sumantra then entered the gynaeum, but it wore such a dismal appearance that he was afraid to advance. It looked like a monster that would spring on him and devour him. Its sight was so repelling. It seemed to be the very abode of calamity and sorrow. Since nobody answered his questions, he proceeded to the apartment where the king and Queen Kaikei were, greeting the king with the words, be victorious and live forever, and bowing his head, he sat down. He turned pale to behold the condition of the king, who lay on the ground distracted with grief and colorless, like a lotus stalk torn from its roots. The minister, being too alarmed to ask any questions, Kaikei, who was full of evil and void of all good, broke the silence. The king has had no sleep last night. Heaven alone knows the reason. He's been simply repeating Rama, Rama till daybreak and refuses to disclose the secret. Therefore, call on Rama and bring him soon. Thereafter, when you have come back, you may ask further details. Judging from his master's look that the king approved of this idea, Sumant left. 
He concluded that the queen had contrived some evil design. He felt so distressed with anxiety that his legs refused to move ahead. What will the king speak to Rama after calling him, he wondered. Recovering himself, he repaired to the gate, and seeing him disconsolate, all began to question him. He, however, reassured them all, and proceeded to the apartment where the ornament of the solar race, Sri Ram, was. When Sri Ram saw Sumantra coming, he received him with honor, treating the minister on an equal footing with his father. Looking Sri Ram in the face, Sumantra conveyed to him the royal command, and returned with the light of Raghu's race, Sri Ram. Sri Ram followed the minister in an unbecoming manner. People here and there were grieved to see this. The jewel of Raghu's race went and saw the king in an utterly wretched state, like an aged elephant who had dropped down in terror at the sight of a lioness. His lips got parched, and his whole frame burned. He looked like a helpless snake bereft of the gem in its hood. The Lord beheld by the side of his father angry Kaikei, who stood there like death personified, counting the last minutes of his life. Sri Ram was compassionate and soft by nature. He witnessed sorrow for the first time in his life. He had never heard of it before. Yet, recovering himself as the occasion demanded, addressed his stepmother in the following sweet words. Tell me, dear mother, the cause of my father's distress, so that an attempt may be made to remove it. Listen, Rama, the sole cause is this. The king is very fond of you. He had promised me two boons of my choice, and I asked whatever I liked. The king, however, was stricken with grief to hear my requests, for he cannot shake off the hesitation on your score. Love for his son on one side, and his plighted word on the other. The king is placed on the horns of a dilemma. Obey his command if you can, and rid him of a severe mental torture. Kaikei unhesitatingly spoke these pungent words, which callousness itself was sore distressed to hear. With the tongue for a bow, and words for so many shafts, and with the king for a delicate target, as it were, it looked as if stiffness had taken the form of a great hero and practiced bowmanship. Having communicated the whole incident to the Lord of Raghu's, Sri Ram, she sat like the very incarnation of heartlessness. The son of the solar dynasty, Sri Ram, the natural fountain of joy, smiled within himself and spoke words which were free from all blemish and were so sweet and agreeable that they seemed to be the very ornaments of speech. Listen, mother, that son alone is blessed who is devoted to the words of his parents. A son who gratifies his father and mother is rare in this wide world, mother. In the forest I shall get more frequent opportunities of meeting hermits, which will be beneficial to me in every way. On top of it, I have my father's command and your approval to boot, mother. Again, Bharat, who is dear to me as life, will get the sovereignty. God is propitious to me in every respect today. If I refuse to proceed to the woods, even under such circumstances, I should be reckoned foremost in an assembly of fools. Those who nurture a castor oil plant, leaving the tree of paradise and barter away nectar for poison, they too will not lose an opportunity like this should they ever get it. Ponder this fact in your mind and realize it, mother. Only one thing pains me. I am grieved to see the king sore distressed that my father should be so overwhelmed with grief over a trifling matter is more than I can believe, dear mother. The king is stout of heart and a fathomless ocean of goodness. 
I must have committed some great offense which prevents the king from speaking out his mind to me. I adjure you, therefore, to tell me the truth. The words of Sri Ram, the chief of Raghus, were artless and straightforward, yet the evil-minded Kaikei gave them a perverse twist. A leech must always move obliquely, even though the water on which it moves has a smooth surface. The queen rejoiced to find Sri Ram inclined toward her proposal, and said with a false show of affection, I swear by yourself and Bharat that no other cause of the king's affliction is known to me. You are hardly capable of any offense, dear son, a source of delight that you are to your parents and brothers. What you say is all true. You are devoted to the words of your father and mother. I adjure you to argue with your father that he may not incur opprobrium in the evening of his life. It is hardly desirable for him to disregard the virtues that have fetched him a son like you. These polite words adorned her detestable mouth, even as sacred spots like Gaia beautify the accursed land of South Bihar. All these words from his stepmother sounded pleasant to Ram in the same way as waters of all kinds are hallowed through their confluence with the holy Ganga. The king's spell of unconsciousness now left him. He remembered Ram and then changed sides and the minister Sumantra informed him of Sri Ram's arrival and made humble submission to him in words appropriate to the occasion. Hearing that Sri Ram had come, the king recovered himself and opened his eyes. The minister Sumantra helped his sovereign to a sitting position, when the latter beheld Ram falling at his feet. Overwhelmed with emotion, the king clasped him to his bosom as though a serpent had regained its lost gem. The monarch kept gazing on Sri Ram, and a torrent of tears streamed forth from his eyes. Overpowered with grief, he could not utter a word and pressed the prince to his heart again and again. He inwardly prayed to God that the Lord of Raghus, Sri Ram, might not be able to proceed to the woods. Invoking the mighty Lord Shiva, he solicited him, saying, Hear my prayer, O ever blissful Lord. Quickly, pleased, and indiscreetly generous as you are, pray relieve my affliction, knowing me to be in distress. Dwelling as you do in the heart of all, as the prompter of action, so inspire Ram that he may flout my word and stay at home, casting to the wind all sense of propriety and filial affection. Let worldwide disrepute be my lot, and let my good name perish. I would fain be damned to perdition and forego heaven. Subject me to all severe hardships, but let not Ram be screened from my view. The king thus prayed within his heart, but did not open his lips. His mind quivered like an aspen leaf. Perceiving that his father was overpowered with affection, and apprehending that Mother Kaikeyi might utter something again, the Lord of Raghu's Sri Ram spoke after due deliberation, words which were not only humble, but also suited to the place, time, and circumstance. Dear Father, I make bold to submit something. Pray forgive this impropriety on my part, knowing that I am yet tender of age. You have suffered for a most trifling matter, and the pity of it is that nobody apprised me of it before. When I saw you, I asked Mother Kaikei and was consoled to hear what she has told me. Grieve not out of affection at a time of rejoicing, dear father, and command me with a glad heart. The Lord felt a thrill of joy all over his body as he spoke these words. Blessed is his birth on the surface of the earth whose father is rejoiced to hear of his doings. 
He has in his hand all the four prizes of life to whom his parents are dear as life. After carrying out your order and having obtained the reward of my life, I shall come back soon. Therefore be pleased to command me. In the meantime, I shall ask leave of Mother Kosalya and return forthwith. Then I shall proceed to the woods after throwing myself once more at your feet. So spoke Sri Ram and then departed, while the king was too overpowered with grief to make any answer. This most unwelcome news spread throughout the city as though the sting of a scorpion had circulated its poison throughout the body. Every man and woman who heard this was distressed, even as trees and creepers are blasted at the very sight of a forest fire. Whoever heard it beat his head wherever he happened to be. The grief was too great to be borne. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Ramayan. Please join us next time. Jai Sitaram!